five. There we go. Numbers chapter five. And we're going to continue our lessons on marriage. This will take us through the end of the year. Quick infomercial. Uh, Our church every week uh, sends out what I call the Sunday preview. It's an email newsletter of sorts that just gives you the titles and the texts of the upcoming sermons and lessons. If you don't receive that, that's because in our church database, I don't have your email. So if you could fill out a connection card or just text me, I'd be happy to put that in there. I want you to receive that email um, so that you can be prepared for the upcoming sermons. You can read those texts, soak your mind and your heart in the truths there. And then also uh, through that same email channel, I recently sent out uh, a little bit of a survey. And I want to hear from you what series have been most helpful to you in the last 18 months, uh, particularly in Sunday school. And then just what books the Bible uh, you would like to study together, what topics you'd like to study. So I'd encourage you to fill that out if you haven't already. Um, I I do look at those and I, I will be Uh, planning the next year's teaching schedule a little bit around that. And so uh, it's been amazing some of the themes that have been common. There's been been one or two threads that have run throughout each of those studies. So I want to encourage you uh, to uh, plan for that, okay? Well, today's lesson on marriage, we're going to cover our next gospel commitment. If you and your couple want to have a gospel-centered, healthy marriage— Uh, you and your spouse, here's the commitment we're going to talk about today. As a couple, you want to commit yourself to build a sturdy bond of trust. I want to talk this morning about how we can, as couples, build a sturdy bond of trust. I don't think I have to convince you of the value of trust in marriage, do I? Trust is so important. Trust is at the center of whether your marriage in the little things and in the big things goes good or bad. If you've ever been in a situation where a little thing has created a really big mess or a big argument, that's probably not because of the issue itself. It's probably because of a lack of trust. If you or your spouse, maybe you feel like they never see the good, they always look at what you do and they always have something to complain about, My friend, that is a trust issue that needs to be repaired. Or on the other side, uh, and I think many of us have found ourselves here, if you have a spouse who gives you a break when you mess up, that's not because you deserve it necessarily. That's a trust issue. That's because there's high trust in the relationship. If you found that something that never used to bother your spouse bothers them now, that's likely a trust issue. Okay. Now, what I want us to talk about this morning, I want our lesson to break down in three parts. I want us to talk about the importance of trust. Then we'll talk about how we lose trust. And then I want to talk about how we gain trust back. I had you turn to Numbers 5. And that's because I think the Bible in Numbers 5, this is an interesting passage I was reading in my personal Bible reading. But Numbers 5 recognizes the importance of marital trust. I want you to look at Numbers chapter 5, and let's read starting in verse number 11 together. Now, follow along the logic here of this passage. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say to them, If any man's wife go outside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, 
and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner. So she's committed adultery and nobody knows. That's the summary, verse 12. Uh, or verse 13. Verse 14, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled. So he thinks she's committing an affair, but she hasn't. Okay? Then, verse 15, shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and she, he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon. For it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. Now look down at verse 29. This is the law of jealousies. When a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband and is defiled. Or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him, and he be jealous over his wife, and shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute upon her all this law, then shall the man be guiltless from iniquity, and this woman shall bear her iniquity. Let me summarize what's happening. You could read this on your own Bible reading uh, if you'd like to, but ultimately what is happening here is that in the law, God is making provision to solve two problems. Problem number one is a woman has committed adultery. The man suspects she's committed adultery, but has no way to prove it. And what happens in that situation, if she has or she has not, at that moment, all trust is out the window, right? You've got a man who thinks she's committed adultery, so it's going to be hard to trust his wife. And you have a wife, if she's innocent, is going to be extremely frustrated that her husband is doubting her integrity, and all marital trust is out the window. And so God, in his graciousness, uh, really provides a tiebreaker, so to speak, to enable this husband, this wife, to move past this situation. If the woman is guilty of adultery, he provides this re religious ritual to confirm if she has committed adultery, even if nobody saw it. He also provides this ritual, as we read, to show that if she hasn't committed adultery, to prove her innocence before the husband. Now, this is really important because in a lot of Eastern cultures, if the man was suspicious, the woman was outed. She had no rights. She had no way to prove her innocence or her standing. Society ultimately didn't care about that. But what I want you to notice is not just the, the ritual itself. We could go and look at all the details there. Um, there's a lot of symbolism there that goes back to some of the laws regarding leprosy and some different things. But I want you to make some, I want to make some broad observations. If this law is in the Old Testament law, it tells us something about God and about human relationships. I, I think it tells us this, and these aren't on your notes, but you might write them down. God cares so much about marital trust, that he created a ritual for a wife to prove her innocence and restore trust to the marriage. Think about that. God saw this as so much of a problem that even after Sinai, he gave this law to help uh, bridge this gap in this issue that was popping up in Old Testament life. And that means that God recognizes the reality that there are marriages that are in such disrepair, that the trust is so low that if one spouse says they're innocent, the other spouse won't listen to them. 
because they've lost all trust for this person. So God cares so much about that, he wants to restore it. And I think what this, this passage is recognizing is that when trust is this low in a marriage, this ought to be the number one priority in a marriage, restoring broken trust. Because without trust, it's hard for a marriage to move forward at all. I'm gonna say that again. When trust is low or broken in a marriage, there is nothing more important than restoring trust in that relationship. I think the presence of this law also teaches us something. That if a marriage has low trust, it doesn't just impact the marriage, it impacts the people of God as a whole. Interestingly, this law finds itself in a larger section that has to do with community relationships among the people of Israel. The section before it has to do with theft between one brother and another. And the passages after it and before it all are in the context of the relationships of the people of Israel. And I think the presence of this law in the middle of it recognizes the fact, and you might want to take notes, that your marriage affects more than just your family. Healthy marriages build healthy churches. Poor marriages pull down churches. If you don't believe that, read 1 Timothy 3. It's so important that that God basically says if a man doesn't have a healthy marriage, he's not fit to be a deacon or a pastor, right? Because healthy marriages make up the nucleus of a church, right? And then what we have to recognize from a biblical standpoint about trust is that we are followers of a trustworthy God, okay? Our God is a high trust God. We can count on him. And the Bible is very clear that because God is trustworthy and you are made in the image of God, specifically you are recreated in the image of God through Jesus, you are called to be trustworthy. Meaning this, if your spouse can't trust you, you have a God problem. If your spouse can't trust you, you have an issue with God himself. Now, why do I say that? Because God himself is trustworthy. Now, you might say, where where in that verse does it say God is trustworthy? Well, you and I think of the word faithful in a very spiritual context, don't we? You know, faithfulness. It's someone who sticks it out in a church or sticks it out for the faith. But what the word faithful means on a literal level is it means reliable, dependable, trustworthy. If you read the word faithful, you can almost, in a sense, write above it, trustworthy, and it would mean the exact same thing. When it says in 1 Corinthians 1.9 that God is faithful, Paul is making the statement that God is one who can be trusted. You never have to worry that God will let you down. When God makes a commitment, he comes through, doesn't he? When God says something, He honors his word. When God makes a commitment, we can take it to the bank. But if God is trustworthy, then that means you and I are supposed to also reflect the trustworthiness of God in our own trustworthiness. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Jesus actually taught on this. He taught that our trustworthiness needs to filter down even to the most menial words we speak. This is how Jesus communicates it. But let your communication be yea, yea, or nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. 
The idea there is Jesus saying this, be a person of your word. Be a person of your word. Be trustworthy. He says you shouldn't have to swear by God's name or by the temple or anything else. When you say something, it should be trustworthy. When you say something, people should be able to take it to the bank. That's what what Jesus is saying in these verses. And, And what this is teaching us as Christians is that it is a spiritual issue whether or not we are trustworthy people, particularly in the relationship that knows the most about you. Listen, if your spouse can't trust you and they know the most about you, you've got serious problems. If the person who knows the most about you trusts you the least, that reveals a serious spiritual flaw. And as Numbers 5 teaches us, we have to repair it. Let me explain to you how trust can be lost in a marriage. This is not an exhaustive issue. I want to talk a little bit about losing trust. First of all, I want you to notice in Proverbs that the Bible is honest about how trust affects a relationship. Listen to the words of Proverbs and how, um, not harsh, but just how realistic this is. When, when someone doesn't trust you, what Proverbs compares that to? Proverbs 25, 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man. Now, what do we talk about? Faithful is equal to what word? Trustworthy. So unfaithfulness would be an untrustworthy person, right? Confidence in someone who's not trustworthy in a time of trouble. What's a time of trouble? When you really need them. So trusting in a person who's not trustworthy in a difficult time is like a broken tooth (laughs) and a foot out of joint. A broken tooth and a foot out out of joint. What is, what, is, what is Solomon saying when he compares trusting in someone you can't rely on in a difficult time to a broken tooth or a foot out of joint? There's a couple observations. Number one, both of those things are useless for their purpose. What good is a broken tooth? It's no good. What good is a foot out of joint? I mean, you're, you're about as crippled as someone who doesn't have a foot, right? You can't put any weight on it. You've got to have crutches. You can only lean on one foot, right? They're useless for their purpose. But also, what those two things share in common is how painful they are. How painful they are. My, my daughter's in the phase of losing her teeth. You've probably noticed Nat has like no front teeth at all. You could fit an entire hot dog between her two front teeth gap, right? And what I've noticed with Nat is that because of her teeth and the potential pain, she, she, for the last several months, has not chewed with her front teeth. She always chews in the back. And I think the same is in marriage, is that when there's low trust in the relationship, what happens is spouses learn how to not rely on each other anymore because it's more painful to hope that he'll come through on his word than to just figure he won't. It's more painful to hope that she won't blow up again than to just say, well, that's how she always acts. You build your life around the untrustworthiness of your spouse in the same way that my my daughter's trying to figure out how to chew with different teeth, right? If you have a foot out of joint, 
Sometimes, uh, especially us men, right, rather than getting it fixed, we just learn how to place our weight in a different part because it's a lot easier to just adjust our life than to try and fix the painful problem, right? And I think that that is exactly a picture of how people feel when they have a spouse who's withdrawn trust from the relationship. They feel, number one, they feel hurt, And number two, they'd much rather work around them than work with them. Now, how do we lose trust? I put a couple on your handout. Number one, we lose trust when you don't keep your word. When you don't keep your word. Jesus taught on that, didn't he? This happens, by the way, in big ways and in little ways. One that, that I, I, I struggle with and, and, and have to work on a lot is I'll be home at, right? I'll be home at, hey, I, I promise I'll prioritize our family time. Or sometimes uh, we don't keep our word when we say things like this. I'm sorry I did that. It won't happen again. I promise we'll go on a date. I promise we'll do that honeymoon someday. We never did when we got married. Here's the truth, men and women. The way you follow the promises you make is the, a barometer or a thermostat of your trustworthiness, often in marriage. Your daily reliability is often what will make or break your trustworthiness to your spouse. What else withdraws trust? It's not paying attention to what your spouse views as important. We talked about a couple weeks ago the selfishness of sin, right? And because of how sin is inherently selfish, sin inherently turns our focus inward and not outward, right? Often what we do as people when we go into a decision or or anything, every hour of your day, your tendency, you will always, because of sin, your uh, default is to look at yourself and what you want and what you feel and what you think. And, and the reason that that can be a problem is that it can affect your schedule or your interests, right? And I want to encourage you that love is committing yourself to care about what she cares about. That's love. Love is acknowledging that what he feels, women, is important. Listen, I think we all know what it's like, that it's hard to trust somebody that you don't feel like they truly see you. They aren't really thinking about you. It's hard to trust somebody like that because when you're trusting somebody, you're, you're putting some skin in the game and you're saying, here's my heart. I want you to manage carefully, fragile, Please handle with care. And if they don't care about what you think and what you feel, you don't trust that they're going to take that very fragile package and shake it around or drop it on the ground every once in a while. Right? Here's another way that we withdraw trust. Say it this way. Excuses instead of confession. Excuses instead of confession. Let me encourage you. Failure itself is not a withdrawal of trust normally. Now, a low-trust relationship it is. But failure itself is not a withdrawal of trust. Excuses, rather than true biblical confession, that is a withdrawal 
of trust. Excuses, rather than actually confessing, we talked about a couple weeks ago that confession is not just saying sorry. Here's what confession is. Confession is making amends where possible. Right? Are we on the same page? Y'all, I don't, I don't care if it's snowing. You got to work with me today. Okay? Same amount of time went in this lesson as it did when it didn't snow. All right? Two-way street. Do we agree? Confession is not just saying sorry. It's making amends where possible. It, it, it's, the Bible says to restore 20%. Right? So confession is not just acknowledging our wrong, it's making amends for our wrong, right? And when men or women, when you wrong your spouse, and instead of confessing, you make excuses, you justify, you give every reason in the book why it was right what you did, hey, that's a withdrawal of trust. Listen, your spouse didn't expect to marry a perfect person. I mean, unless they're truly delusional. Your spouse expected to marry someone who's imperfect but would actually try and work on their imperfections. Is that realistic? Did anyone here uh, think they married a perfect person? Okay. How many in here expect their spouse to work on their imperfections? Some of you don't. Okay. Well, we've got bigger problems then. That or you just, your shoulder hurts, so you don't want to raise your arm, right? Here's the next one. How do we withdraw trust in a marriage? It's lack of respect for each other and decisions. And by the way, this works in other relationships too. It's not just marriage. But when you don't consider the other person in a decision, that withdraws trust. I think the reason a lot of this happens is that many spouses, they know how their husband or wife would respond and they don't like how they would respond. So instead of actually respecting the other person's feelings in a decision, they work around it, right? For instance, he's a tightwad, right? Your husband's a tightwad, and you want to go buy something. And in your opinion, you have enough money to do it. You know the finances, right? Or you know the need because you're, you're more in, involved in that part of caring for your home or your family. And so, yeah, you know if you go to your husband, he's going to be a tightwad and say no. So instead, you just, what, what's the old motto? It's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Yeah, that's this very stupid, stupid motto. Let me just help you, okay? So you go out and buy it, right? I know, so I know a, a, a wife, she, uh, she really wanted to paint their cabinets. Really wanted to paint their cabinets. The husband wasn't for it. Well, he went on a, a several-day trip, and he comes home to painted cabinets. Because <laughs> what are you going to do when your spouse has gone through all the work to paint the cabinets, Right? You make plans that affect your family's schedule without letting your spouse know or consulting with them. Listen, these are withdrawals of trust. Because here's, at the core, when you don't respect the other person's feelings of decision, here's what you're saying. You're saying this, that you don't value what they think. You don't value what they think. Or you're saying this, my opinion is more important. My opinion is more important. Okay? And I want to warn you that it can be tempting as, a, as someone who's married to be really frustrated because as a, as a grown person, you want to be your own man or your own woman, right? 
I, I work a job that earns 40, 50K a year. I should have a say in how this is spent, not to go ask my spouse what they think, right? I have my own life, and I should have a say in what I do with my schedule too. By the way, you, you still have a say. No one's challenging that. But what happens a lot in marriage is that a lot of spouses in, in these type of areas, they want to fight for their autonomy. They want to fight for their autonomy. And let me warn you that in marriage, a step towards autonomy being your own person, is often a step away from harmony. A step towards being your own man is a step against being a family. Because what you have to recognize is that in marriage, and I say this to every couple I do premarital counseling with, I said at a wedding I did two weeks ago, here's what, here's what is the truth. Marriage is the definitive point that you stop thinking about I and you start thinking about we. That hasn't changed, even if your vows were 50 years ago. How do we lose trust? We lose trust by withholding our feelings or a lack of honesty. Men, pay close attention. Those of you who have been hurt and wounded by your spouse and you've withdrawn, pay close attention. Think about this. Is it hard to trust someone that you feel like is playing their cards close to the chest? Is it hard to trust someone that you don't really know how they're feeling or thinking in a moment? Is that difficult? For me, it is. I have some different things I'm dealing with right now. I got some family and things that I, I'm not so sure they're being honest with me when they speak. They're not sharing their full feelings about something um, in my extended family. And I'll be honest, that, that as I read that, it, it's like, okay, I can't trust them because they're not being honest with me, Right? They're not being honest with me. So, so if you say, if your husband asks you, are you okay? I'm fine. Ever been there? I'm fine. Okay. Look, you may not want to talk about it. That's one thing. Can I just help you? Instead of saying that, just say, I don't want to talk about it. At least be honest. But you know what that tells your husband? I can't trust her. She willingly lies to me when I wanna help her, I wanna resolve this, I'm fine, right? Sometimes um, men particularly, we don't like the fact sometimes that we're, we have emotions about stuff, we're really frustrated, we're really angry, we're really disappointed, we're really hurt, and it's like a slow boil, and we don't even sometimes recognize it, but we start evolving into this big grumpy oaf, you know, walking around the house, and something's bothering us, and, and our, our spouse will ask us almost the same, question and we don't want to share because it makes us feel like a wimp when we share how hurt or angry or confused we are with our spouse. But, but I just want to remind you that it's hard for your spouse to actually feel like you two are one flesh. One human is how that really is interpreted. It's hard for your spouse to feel like you're one flesh when they can't even interpret the feelings of this other half of their marital body, Right? So withholding feelings or a lack of honesty is a withdrawal of trust. Here's another one. Tearing down our spouse to others. Tearing down our spouse to others. I will say generally, generally, I've seen this more as an issue with women. Generally. Here's a good rule of thumb. This will work in any area of life, if you're married or not. If you have a problem with someone they shouldn't find out through a third party. 
I'm going to say that again. If you have a problem with someone, they shouldn't find out through a third party. That works for everything, right? You got a problem with me? I shouldn't find out through somebody else. Like that, humans talk to each other about their problems. Christians, <laughs> Christians talk to each other about their problems. Spouses, people who share a bed, for goodness sakes, talk to each other about their problems, right? If you have an issue with the father of your children, your children should not know about it. They shouldn't. Deal with it behind closed doors. If you have an issue with your mom, or your wife, I mean, your mom shouldn't know if you haven't even talked to your wife, right? Ultimately, when your spouse finds out, and trust me, they will, they will. When your spouse finds out that you go blurt out how he or she has neglected you or hurt your feelings or didn't consider you in this decision, boy, oh boy, just count that up as a big fat withdrawal from the ATM of trust. Because spouses talk about their problems. Spouses work on their problems. Now let's talk a little bit about building trust. And I want to give a warning to those who may recognize or in the future may recognize you are in a low trust situation. And I don't think it's rocket science to figure out if your marriage is not that great, okay? Most people are honest about that. The Bible is very clear that regaining trust after losing it takes extra work. Extra work. One author said this, I think it's Paul Tripp, he said that trust is the fine china of marriage. Does anyone still have china? You know what I'm talking about? Like the plates, not the country. Anyone still have china around here, right, Miss Joy? Yeah, the stuff that you only break out this past week, (laughs) you know, you don't use any other time of year. Yeah, that china, right? It's the expensive plates. Trust is the fine china of marriage. It's capable of shattering. Sometimes that china is shattered by years of neglect and inattention. Sometimes it's shattered by a big moment of unfaithfulness or betrayal. And counseling a few people in these situations, here's what I've noticed. That building or maintaining trust is far easier than regaining trust. I want to say this to our our younger families. Work hard building trust now. Work hard maintaining trust now. Now, don't neglect this work. You need this more than you think because you're gonna make really big mistakes more often than you think. I've counseled people whose marriage has been through an affair. And I've watched twice now, I've, I've been two counseling situations like this, as the husband who in each situation committed the affair is really broken about it, really hates himself for it, has tearfully apologized Lord knows how many times, and is getting counseling from a pastor, which is the last thing he thought he wanted to do, right? And in each of these situations is putting in a lot of work to regain trust. In both situations, I've seen how this man has been incredibly frustrated because after weeks of working on this, his spouse doesn't trust him at all. Why? Because if you break fine china, an apology doesn't fix it. Imagine shattering a plate. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to put a plate back together. You know what repairing fine china takes? A lot of super glue and a lot of time, right? 
and scouring the house for all the little pieces that broke. And the same is true in marriage. In fact, the Bible says this in Proverbs 18, 19. It says a brother, not not an acquaintance. No, no, no. A brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. So if you've hurt your brother, or you could say your spouse's feelings, if you've offended them, it's, here's what Solomon says, it's harder to win them back than to overcome a strong city. Their contentions are like the bars of a castle. So, so what Solomon is saying is that if you have built up years of distrust and neglect and hurt feelings, men, women, buckle up. Winning back your marriage is harder than breaking into a fortified castle. That's what Solomon says. Now, he's not trying to discourage us from that work, but he's trying to be realistic that, number one, for those of us who have some trust in our marriage, we better be careful to maintain and build on that trust. And for those of us who have lost trust and we feel like we have an offended brother or sister in our marriage, then he's trying to be realistic and say, you need to persevere through the hard work of regaining trust because it's going to take a while. Now, here's how we build trust. Number one, we seek to understand the other person. If you have family, not just your spouse, if you have family that doesn't trust you or you feel like the relationship is really, really burned, start here. Seek to understand the other person. He's a Mormon, not a real Christian, but he's, uh, Stephen Covey said it well, uh, that one of his, his habits, he says, for highly effective people is to seek first to understand then to be understood. Seek first to understand. How do you know when you understand somebody? Let me give you a, a tactic, men and women, in a conversation with your spouse that's heated. <clears throat> Here's how you can help them see that you understand them. Try and articulate their feelings in words that they can appreciate. Some of y'all need to have some conversation. You might write this down. Try to articulate their feelings in words they can appreciate. Sweetheart, I, I, it sounds to me like the reason you're frustrated with me is X, Y, and Z. Is that correct? Yes. You've understood. But most of us, what we do is all the other person's talking. This certainly never happens to me. But you know, when the other person is talking, rather than trying to formulate and piece together, okay, let me, let me really investigate what's going on here. We formulate our defense strategy, right? Ah, yes. I found that weak spot. Now, that wasn't true. I'm going to attack that, right? But if you want to build trust, don't do that. If you want to build trust, seek first to understand. Seek to understand them. Here's the next one. Attend to the little things. Attend to the little things. Little things, in marriage especially, make a big difference. Little things make a big difference. Actually, Song of Solomon acknowledges in Song of Solomon 2.15 that the little foxes are what spoil the vineyards, right? And what Song of Solomon's saying there, it's in a relational context, is that when we neglect little things, that's when problems start to creep up. And so if we want to build trust in our marriage, we start attending to the little things because little things show that you understand them. Little things show that you're listening to them. Little things show that you're not just trying to manage your relationship. You actually love that person. Here's another one. Display personal integrity. Display personal integrity, okay? This one is huge. Your spouse needs to know 
that you will act with integrity when no one's looking. This isn't just for uh, sexual relationships, though that is obviously important. Um, I think this is true uh, more often, probably for more marriages. It's how you spend money. Like, I need to trust, if, if, if you have a debit card, that you're going to spend that debit card when I'm not there in a way that honors my feelings in the relationship. Right? That when you're not around me, you're going to use words that honor me and my feelings in the relationship when I'm not around you. That's integrity. Integrity is being the same person when no one's looking as when they're looking, right? And I'll say to some who are in a trust rebuilding situation, um, you need to go above and beyond to demonstrate your integrity. So many spouses get so frustrated when after a, low, a, a big withdrawal of trust, an affair or something like that, that their spouse starts to micromanage them. And so they get frustrated and they say, no, I want my autonomy. Let me act like a human when they, when they should be saying, you know what, I invite all personal scrutiny. Look through my internet history. Check up where I am 24 hours a day. I don't care. I want you to see that I'm acting in a way that honors you around the clock. Here's another one. Keep commitments. <laughs> Keep commitments. When you say you're going to get something done, get it done. Jesus said so, Right? Let your yay be yay. That's a commitment. So whether that's your honeydew project, Christmas gift, keep your commitments. Now, providence happens. Picking up kids from school, an apology, picking up the phone when the other person calls. Here's another one, over-communicate. Over-communicate. Knowing most of the people in this room, here's what I'd say. If, if most of you, nearly all of you, are in your mind over-communicating, you're probably at the bar of properly communicating, okay? So over-communicate if you made that plan. Don't just tell your husband once, tell him three times. I know, you shouldn't have to, tell him three times. Over-communicate, men, if you have plans in the evening that'll keep you away from home. Over-communicate, men, your feelings about something. What? Yeah, over-communicate. Remember, withholding feelings, lack of honesty, is a withdrawal of trust. Over-communicate. Over-communicate your love. Over-communicate positivity. Over-communicate your wants and your wishes and your desires, right? Here's another one. Keep trying. Keep trying. You want to make a low-trust situation worse? Stop trying. Say, oh, no, a brother offended is like a fortified castle. I guess I'll stop trying. Well, my friend, that is a continual withdrawal from the bank. That's like continually siphoning off money. If you and your spouse both recognize your marriage is garbage and no one is trying, you are trusting each other less by the day because someone is waiting for someone to care enough to fix this thing, right? So keep trying, keep trying. I love what uh, someone said. They said that love never dies a natural death. Love dies because we don't know how to replenish its source. It dies of blindness and errors and betrayals, illness and wounds, weariness, witherings, and tarnishings. Here's the last one. Be humble enough to accept help. If I were you, I'd make a rule in your marriage. If one spouse says our marriage needs help, we get help. 
make a rule. If one spouse says our marriage needs help, we get help. Men, I'm sorry, this is normally your fault. What you need to recognize is you're probably too self-deceived to make a logical decision about whether or not your marriage needs help. It's a pride thing. So if one spouse is ready to pull the ripcord or push the emergency button, one way you can, you can throw a little bit of coin in the trust bank is by saying, fair enough. I'll go with it. You think we need help? Let's get help. Be humble enough to accept help. I really think that trust is much similar to a bank account balance. That's why when little things go horribly wrong in a marriage, it doesn't make sense. It's because your trust bank account is too low. Because you're making withdrawals that you can't cash on, right? So if trust is a bank account, here's my final two words for every marriage in here. I want you to check your balance. Check your balance. In the same way that hopefully you check your bank account balance, if you don't, uh, praise, you know, either you're well-funded and I'm happy for you, or <laughs> you're very bad at managing money, right? But in the same way, I think you need to check your balance in your marriage. Where's our trust account balance sitting at? And number two, every marriage needs to do this. You need to make some deposits. It's the golden rule of money, right? Make more deposits than withdrawals and you'll be okay. Same thing's true in marriage. Make more deposits than withdrawals. Take this list of depositing trust and say, where can I improve? Where can I improve? Let me, let me make some deposits this week. Not because I want to manage my spouse, because I love them. And, and I know that our marriage needs trust. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you're trustworthy. We can rely on you. Thank you, God, by your grace. You can enable us to be people who reflect your image of being a trustworthy person, a trustworthy God. I pray, Lord, for those relationships in here. Maybe that would be in a very low trust situation where there's a brother offended who's harder to be one than a strong city. I pray you would, you would instill in each spouse a fire to build trust. In Jesus' name, amen.